This fall, hear from the writers who define our time with 9-2-NY. Tom Stoppard, Ian McEwen, Namwali Serpel, Orhan Pamuk, and many more. Discover the voices of literature only with 9-2-NY. For tickets, visit 92ny.org or call 212-415-5500. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the September issue, Zachary Siegel writes about a new treatment for addiction, deep brain stimulation, or DBS, in which a neurosurgeon implants a chip in the patient's nucleus accumbens to electrically stimulate the brain. The nucleus accumbens is where dopamine is released, and it's associated with processing desire, motivation, and reinforcement, at least according to the latest research. I emphasize latest research because the highly invasive, clinically unproven nature of DBS and the medical device companies that are seeking new uses for the procedure brings to mind an extreme surgery that defined mid-20th century psychopathology, the lobotomy. In our conversation, Siegel and I explore the rigid, harmful received wisdom around addiction, recovery, and relapse, the limitations of many substance abuse treatments, the potential of DBS, and the lack of knowledge about what really makes someone achieve and maintain sobriety. Perhaps a useful place to start is by discussing what sort of treatment options exist for addicts, because in addition to stigma about addiction, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of misconception about recovery. And that includes people who work at treatment facilities. What is available varies greatly from state to state, but like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are like the best known, largely because of sitcoms in the 90s. But um, could we talk about sort of the range of treatment options yeah. for for people out there? I mean, you're... you're- very right that the the best known and by far the most prevalent in terms of the paradigms and modalities that treatment centers adopt and use to treat patients are the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's even a little weird using the term patient in that context, because as you alluded to, a lot of people who staff these facilities have little to no medical training. And so in terms of the spectrum of healthcare for addiction, it, it it's kind of the wild west out there. And there's a lot of unregulated facilities, a lot of weird insurance kickback scams. Like there's a, a ton of the addiction treatment world that just operates well outside of established mainstream medical care. And, and so that's part of my interest in, in the story that wound up on the September cover about DBS. It, it, it was like this hardcore neurobiological and rigorously medicalized approach to treating addiction that is still pretty rare for the field as a whole, I think. And Everyone I talked to was like a neuropsychologist or an MD or an MD, PhD or straight up neurosurgeons. And so all that really just attracted me since so much for what passes 
as treatment in healthcare really falls under the umbrella of self-help, which is, I think, what you said, like it's group therapy, it's um, meditation, it's prayer, it's kind of spiritually grounded over the, the, the kind of pharmacological interventions or cognitive behavioral therapy approaches we, we tend to see in, I guess, like Western medicine, right? Right. No. And I, th I think it's important to, to recognize that, like, it's not like you can't get sober using AA or NA or whatever, but it's a, the, the rigor of the steps, right? And that you have to, you know, there's, there's this notion in AA of, you know, if you, if you fall off the wagon, you have to start over again and your your days of sobriety don't count or that, you know, if you're white knuckling it and things things like that that um, are not, you know, perhaps uh, helpful to everybody, <laughs> you know, because I think a really important myth about recovery that you debunk in your piece is that relapsing is not necessarily a sign that treatment has failed. And, and in fact, it can be considered not just the norm, but a step in the right direction. So um, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on relapse as it's a portrayed in popular media or popular culture, as opposed to its reality. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that, that you picked up on that bit about the uh, kind of ways in which we view relapse as this kind of apocalyptic event for someone's recovery. Like, I, I think that's typically how we see uh, whether it's reality TV shows like Intervention or scripted television or or movies, where it's very binary, it's very it's very black and white. It's either you are on the wagon and you're sober and you're like a capital G good person, <laughs> or you are uh, in the throes of a hellish addiction where you're lying and you're cheating and you're stealing and you're in this self-destructive spiral like those are the kind of two sides of of addiction that are typically portrayed and and i think what is much more close to reality is that a lot of these things take a lot of time and that a relapse you know th that word just has so much baggage and like I like to use words like, oh, so-and-so slipped up. Like they, they drank one night and regretted it the next day. And they're, they're kind of like back doing their thing. Like, like that's not really a seismic event in someone's life. But in the uh, kind of totalizing story of, of addiction out there, and I, I think a lot of this is fueled by the way the 12 steps are, are depicted in, in, in pop culture is that uh, it, it's really this binary. It's, it's either uh, it, it's zero to one. It's either you're, you're on the, the path and you're uh, an upstanding citizen or you're this kind of degenerate. And, and I think there's a lot of space between these two things that, that just doesn't really uh that, that I think for reasons is kind of hard to dramatize because it's just kind of very boring, almost just all too human stuff. Yeah, it doesn't make for a good dramatic arc 
to be like they did this totally human thing to made, made a mistake and it's not you know the, the end of the world but again it like because i think there is this idea that oh just because somebody's sober they might slip up they might relapse and therefore even though they're sober i can't rely on them because that 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 possibility is out there that they're just going to become this totally unreliable lying cheating whatever you want to say person it is it you know it's it's really important to be like you know don't see addiction as this this crazy binary because uh the the more you do that the the, the or the the less that you give into that impulse the easier it is for people you know to try and get sober to see themselves differently and to you know have room to to make mistakes and to to be human yeah and and the, the way i was approaching the that kind of word relapse and uh in, in the story what was really in the context of of research agendas. And it's been the case for so long that total and complete abstinence uh, is sort sort of became the, the, only, the only benchmark for whether a therapy or a medication or something is like, quote unquote, working or not. And that is just an absurdly high bar to set for human beings who I think history tells us as a species really like to alter our consciousness like all of us kind of do this around the world <laughs> yeah like <laughs> across time across cultures yeah. it's, it's weird right <laughs> yeah and and just just what one thing i have to plug like early on is like right after my story in the september issue is this amazing piece of writing from i think like the 1860s or something from yeah. a doctor writing about one of their patients who was addicted to opium and in just such a mm -hmm. kind of beautiful and compassionate way. And I'm like, yeah, like this stuff has been with us for so long and we're just like as a civilization or as a culture right now, we're just, we just have this amnesia about, I think our uh, history of, of, of drugs in particular, but with regard to everything, but in particular that amnesia just, feels so stark in, in this subject. Oh yeah, and I think also that peace um again it's 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 really wonderful, but it also points out the the lack of movement, right? <laughs> the lack of evolution or perhaps that, you know, the doctor in the 1860s might have had a better perspective on this than a doctor now where it's like or, or somebody now where it's like, well, maybe addiction is something you live with in a way that, you know, uh, the sort of the, the, the AA model does not allow for, but we can, we can, we can talk about, I mean, we can sort of get to that later, but like, it's just, it, it's, you know, addiction kind of means that, you know, it's own thing for everybody sobriety what sobriety actually entails what recovery actually entails varies so much between person to person because you can you can complete a program and be sober but you can also have like no social circle because or you can have friends but you're afraid to see them because you know if you see them you're gonna slip up you could have you could be sober and have no job your family may not want to talk to you so like what would 
getting beyond the idea of like stone cold sobriety and a more holistic idea of recovery mean? Like, is it, is it a possible to define? Is it, you know, is addiction something that we could learn to live with if it's not totally destructive? Because sorry to sound like a giant pothead, but <laughs> coffee is a drug. Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it. Everybody drinks coffee. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, this is a really hard question because I think, um, like you said, addiction and recovery really do mean so many different things to so many different people. And I think the more that we can take that and uh, illustrate it and conceptualize it and broadcast it, the the more I think the spectrum of what these words mean can can open up for people. And I, I just think this like is where my own addiction story becomes really a useful illustration. And, and like, I'll preface all this with like, I don't think I'm some unique or special case of, uh, of addiction. I think it's quite normal where in my late teens and early twenties, which is when most kind of mental health problems and things like substance use kind of kick off for people at that developmental phase like that is when i wound up going to treatment for an opioid addiction and and i say in the story that i turned 23 inside of a treatment center and i just turned 33 and so i look back at this decade and i just see all the different phases of recovery that i've been through and it's been very, very different. And how I think about these things are very, very different depending on where I'm at in my life. And just to kind of try to give some abbreviated chronicle of this uh, decade of recovery, it, it's like the first couple of years, I was just completely stone cold sober. And that was a product of me going to a very popular treatment facility called Hazelton, which militantly adheres to the 12-step the creed of, of abstinence and basically going to AA meetings forever. And after a few months inside this institution, I then moved to, to St. Paul, Minnesota and lived in like a recovery home. And that's, you know, we're all in our 20s. We're all like a group of like messy guys living in this house and and it was pretty easy to like stay on the abstinence kind of 12-step path there because everyone in my social circle was doing it and then after a few months of that i i had like one semester left of college and i moved back home to chicago to finish that and that's when i just kind of started living my life and finishing school and and eventually really stopped doing 12-step meeting stuff completely because just the conditions, the material conditions of my life changed. And I, and that's at the same time, I began to really embark on doing journalism and research and writing on this subject. And it's kind of through all this that I really started to, for the first time, think for myself about this topic and think really critically and kind of challenge the things I had been taught in in rehab. And so I, I kind of like, this is like my 
experimental phase and i had uh did some tests on myself let's say and like i i i had uh this girlfriend at the time and I'm still with her and she's not in recovery and doesn't have any addiction or drinking issues. And, and we kind of joke to this day about how I relapsed on glug. It's a mold wine that people drink like around Christmas time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is funny. Cause like I was raised Jewish. I had never tried glug. You know, I, I didn't go to a lot of like mm-hmm. Christmas parties with mold wine stewing. <laughs> and, and so like we're at this bar in Andersonville and it's like this kind of, this neighborhood in Chicago for whatever reason like a lot of Swedish people used to live and my girlfriend's family's kind of Swedish and so we were just like I, I drank some glug like the 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 occasion just felt like it called for it and and I felt no <laughs> cravings like no obsessive thoughts like I was really thinking to myself what am I feeling right now it's my first drink in years and I didn't have any compulsion to drink heavily or or to get drunk and and it kind of started to crystallize like, yes, like perhaps my addiction to opioids was momentary. It was happening at a specific place in time because I was in a specific phase of my life, really where I was kind of mentally and probably more so existentially suffering and, and confused and adrift. And, and opioids introducing that substance to me at that time kicked off a rather dangerous pattern of use and here i am now i'm i'm in my mid 20s in this story and and i can drink alcohol and feel like pretty much a normal person and even learn that i don't really like alcohol that much and to this day i drink on occasion and go to parties and Usually I wind up babysitting the same gin and tonic the whole night. And I've just come to naturally learn what my drinking pattern and habits are. And I feel like this story maybe feels threatening in some way to someone who adheres very rigorously to a program of abstinence. And I think I try to... uh tell this story or write about these things in a way that isn't like I'm not trying to like bash someone over the head with a different version or report about it or write about it in a way that is meant to be provocative or threatening but just to open up the space to think a bit differently about something that I think has really kind of fossilized and has been very stale since the the 1930s and 40s when when the 12 steps really took hold in America and have stayed with us ever, ever since right and i think you know what you said is really important not again not going to bash aa like it if if it works for people it works um but just opening up the field to different approaches and thinking differently about these things is really beneficial because again, you there's there, because of the stigma, because of the idea of like some what of what someone who goes to AA is like, or that you know again talking about living in different parts of the country, you know your connection to AA, you know is totally dependent on who else is going to those meetings, like you know like you or who your sponsor is. Like there are so many variables there that can not allow you to make that connection. And, 
even just, you know, hearing your story about like, oh, yeah, I I can drink, but maybe I don't even really like to drink and wondering, well, is it is it not just the, the time in your life, but the particular effects of the drug that were harmful to you that became a problem for you? Because, again, there are, you know, and again, and not to threaten anybody who believes in Charles step program, but there are people who can do other drugs that you know are are worse or or more prevalent th th than the drug they are addicted to and not experience those those problems like it's so it's it's such a fluid complicated thing but again sobriety can be such a part of your identity and i don't say that in a in a mean way it's just like it's a huge accomplishment that you can be really proud of, perhaps proud of in a way you've never been proud of anything else in your whole life. And so to have someone be like, well, maybe it's this other way that that is that that is threatening. That's yeah, hard to hear. Yeah, it, but yeah, it can feel really destabilizing if someone yeah. has been really adherent and grounded in a philosophy and worldview of of addiction and recovery and then suddenly someone comes along and has just a completely different view and experience yeah i like i i've encountered that that many many times and the i think one reason why i just think it's important to to stick with this and and keep doing some of the reporting that i do and talk about addiction this way is because I think back to that idea of relapse and it being the apocalypse and that abstinence is the only viable benchmark of success. I think it keeps a lot of people away from yeah. uh, treatment because they they think it's like, oh, I need to quit my job. I need to go away from my family. I need to fly away to some far-flung a secluded facility for 90 days i can't possibly do that like i just think right all these things that that are quite demanding and and, and actually really challenge people to change their lives in, in radical ways i think for someone in who might have a, a problematic uh relationship with substances like that high bar and that radical change I think it's easy to look at that and say, like, no, not for me. Like, I I'm going to keep right. putting this off where maybe... Or I can't yeah. be that perfect. Right, exactly. And and again, it's for, for me, it's like just knowing the, the history of, of human civilization and that for millennia, things like opium have been around and that alcohol has been around and caffeine and all these substances have been so alluring to us for 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 forever that like i just think that the, that kind of changes the way i i view drugs and and the way that i and i think humans use them and I, and that it's not necessarily this transgressive aberrant behavior but perhaps is something much more human than we think yeah and I mean, we can, the one thing I will say to kind of push back on what you said is that the, there's a huge difference between opium and something like fentanyl. Yes. Because, uh, you know, uh, 
the the type of medicinal grade opiates that are being used you know they're not just used for people who you know they're not just being abused by people with problems with substances they're also being used to perform surgery like there are so many things medically that we could not do without the class of opiates that have basically destroyed a large swath of this country because you know the sacklers and other drug companies came up with something that was so perfect like this this far too perfect drug that it 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 sweeps away so much and the and the like the intensity the high like if you like if you're somebody who like gets hooked on fentanyl you're not going to go back down to heroin because heroin is weak right compared to or it it doesn't even give you close to the same effects of what fentanyl does but it's it's this it's so it's like Again, this this <laughs> I feel like we'll keep circling back to this, where it's like the the role of medicine in trying to you know fit quote unquote fix the problem of opiate addiction made it so 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 much worse. And and putting faith in science to to you know improve on nature uh, backfires a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, especially with the. Uh, current phase of the overdose crisis, which has been supercharged because of synthetic versions of opium like fentanyl and these really horrific sounding uh, fentanyl analogs and all these kind of synthetic cousins of fentanyl that are popping up and have by this point like fully entrenched themselves in the street opioid supply and it is yeah like romantic to think about chilling in an opium den with like a low dose kind of low grade type of opiate where it's almost like yeah equivalent to a cup of coffee but like inverted in the sedative way (laughs) but these things are, yeah, it's used for anesthesia. It's used for surgery. It, it is so powerful. And that, I think, is responsible for a lot of the horrific mortality that we're witnessing. And I think truly like a, a level of addiction that even I don't even uh, have experience with because the opioids I used were things like oxycodone and hydrocodone and and also heroin which are just at a far uh weaker scale than than fentanyl and so it's uh the things i've seen and and heard about fentanyl addiction in particular are just absolutely uh brutal like there's no other way to put it yeah, and again, this is a period of like 10 years, not even that this that this advance that this huge change has happened. Like it's really um terrifying. It makes it a very urgent issue and there seems to be like a real uh you know, you in your piece you write there is no nationwide rallying cry to flatten the curve of overdose mortality, no daily public health briefings. End quote. So why you know, given how utterly destructive this has been, how utter, how 
much worse it has gotten in a relatively short period of time, why don't you think the opioid crisis is treated more urgently as a public health issue? I mean, it's it's weird. I think it, it's been competing with COVID for attention, where I like around 2016 is really when like the phrase opioid epidemic became a national issue of interest and you and we heard politicians kind of talking about it on the campaign trail when they visited places like Ohio and New Hampshire and it was the biggest issue for people living in those states and almost everyone living in those states either has a close friend or relative who has died or become addicted and and it's really uh become yeah a massive actual public health emergency and it's been declared a public health emergency since 2018 and in the four years since that declaration the emergency declaration which kind of felt like window dressing it didn't like free up all these resources and mobilize uh, tons of investment and money but it, it at least put it on the map as a problem. And then four years since then, the overdose mortality has like almost doubled. Like it's just gotten so much worse. And so in terms of why the like we didn't get the kind of uh like the equivalent of uh Governor Cuomo giving us a daily <laughs> uh soothing seminar on public health and there's no like Anthony Fauci of the opioid epidemic and like shouldn't he be on that? Yeah, like I think so. <laughs> and 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 so it, it's something that I've really tried to wrestle with and and it it it's like back to the ideas of stigma and a lot of these misconceptions uh that kind of cut through American culture that people with addiction uh a lot of the times people think they brought this on themselves that they they knew drugs are dangerous and they shouldn't have used them and they did it anyway and why are we responsible for people who make bad decisions mm -hmm. um yeah i think it, and you can see that you can see that in people who uh you know are, are like, yeah, those people deserve to die from COVID because they don't wear a mask. Very similar. Like that compassion cuts both, the, the lack of compassion, I should say, cuts both ways. Yeah, I, I think I see this crop up the most when it comes time to like put our money where our mouth is with the overdose crisis and let's invest millions of dollars in naloxone, which is a miracle controversial drug, a miracle <laughs> drug it reverses the effects of an opioid overdose brings people back to life who are on the brink of certain death it's an amazing drug and yet when it's time to invest in this and really distribute it people kind of say like uh we should let them die they're a burden on our economy on our society uh, and it's kind of this dark uh, kind of social Darwinism or eugenicist kind of thinking where it's like uh, these people are going to die and they'll be selected out of the population. 
Yeah, and I think that kind of ties into uh, another part of recovery or perhaps the idea that addiction is something we learn to live with is that is this, this is a subject of harm reduction. And I realize harm reduction is a huge uh, subject. There are lots of debate even within the harm reduction community about how to best approach harm reduction. And for people who are unfamiliar, um, I believe in Chicago, there's this thing like a, it's called like a wet house instead of it. So it's like a, it's a homeless shelter. It's, it's for people who are unhoused and are in, and alcoholics, but they're not required to go without alcohol. Like they're not required to be sober, to spend the night there. And that's financially, that's a much better solution for both the state, uh, because you don't have to call an ambulance, have somebody come pick them up, take them to jail or to, you know, wherever. Um, and it's a far more humane option for someone who is perhaps a terminal alcoholic, who's not, who's not going to recover for, you know, whatever reasons. And it's, and, and it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a solution to it's it's learning to live with addiction in a way that again people might not be entirely comfortable with. <laughs> um, so could we could we talk about that a bit? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm I think it's a it's a fascinating uh, way to think about addiction because it, it does really cut against the idea that abstinence is kind of the only solution on the table and and it's like i'm just really enmeshed in in this stuff and so i kind of forget like what is common knowledge and what everyone knows and doesn't know but it's worth saying here that alcohol is one of the drugs that simply cannot be quit cold turkey um if someone is a heavy consumer abruptly quitting can induce seizures people could even die from it and so that prerequisite for sobriety um yeah just is not practically possible in a lot of cases and and going back to alcoholics anonymous like there are actually scenes in that in the what's called the big book uh, of alcoholics anonymous where the kind of first people committed to the program they actually kept stashes of alcohol in their homes for when someone maybe showed up at their door drunk and, and wanted help they these recovering alcoholics in the early aa days knew that they had to monitor this person and they also had to give them enough alcohol to keep them from seizing up and going into terrible withdrawal and so even back then, among the early AA people, like it wasn't taboo to give someone who is a heavy drinker, who has a truly disastrous alcohol addiction, it wasn't taboo to give them a drink. It, 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 was, it was a medical necessity. And I think this carries over to other substances too, like opioids, where the most effective treatments that we have for opioid addiction, they are also opioids. And these drugs are drugs like methadone, um, which has incredibly stigmatized and a, a newer kind of version of it that's slightly different called uh, buprenorphine, which is largely known by its brand name Suboxone. And both of these substances 
really uh, do an effective job of stabilizing people who are trying to perhaps get out of the uh, crippling addiction of a of fentanyl or heroin or other things on the street. And they take these substances daily and go about their lives. And I've seen it work amazingly in, in, in people. So let's talk about DBS because um, even though it's perhaps not a worthy of a, you know, there's no, there's no opioid bay like there is like Fauci's bay or whatever. Um, you know, the there were several papers covering the first trial of DBS, and they it was framed as this excite, exciting cure all. Like it's you know, you know, solving addiction one chip at a time. Yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. sort of like the worst newspaper cliches. Um, but you know, so. I mean, and again, this is another huge question, but how can media coverage of opioid addiction be more accurate um, when, or at least a little less, um, you know, new, or a, little bit, a little bit more nuanced than like, here's this experimental brain surgery that's going to fix everything. Yeah. Let's see. I guess assign me to write 6,000 words about it. <laughs> 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 just, just kidding. I mean, it's in 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 truth, though, it it is just so complicated, and there's so many layers to everything that uh, I think a a kind of quick glance can easily produce flawed or misleading or inaccurate coverage. And and I think especially like with when it comes to newspaper beats and and reporters, especially in more smaller towns and with local papers unfortunately they don't have the resources to have a science reporter or someone who's just dedicated to covering the community's health for instance and so uh, assigning someone who's more of a generalist who doesn't have the requisite knowledge and background and isn't kind of uh, steeped in in the scientific literature on the subject it, it it's it's almost impossible to produce something without flaws and and even i what like spend so much time on this even i will make mistakes and get things wrong it's just a very uh complex territory and so i i, I just wish that addiction and mental health and things like neuroscience were just much more of a dedicated beat that uh had a lot of investment and, and resources in in the industry um it's it, it, like just there every paper kind of has like a political columnist or some kind of pundit or some kind of commentary <laughs> or multiple pundits. multiple pundits and there's just there's just no one on the science desk doing or, yeah. And and it's just we're in this era of plagues and pandemics and epidemics and uh, climate catastrophe. And it's just like we really just do need uh, to hire some nerds who love science and want to write <laughs> about it and translate what the research and what the evidence is saying. And and I just love doing that. And I love to find uh, kind of compelling illustrations that uh I think 
work as vehicles for all these debates that we're getting into. And I think DBS in particular is an amazing uh, vehicle for the debate between the kind of hardcore neurobiological medicalization view of it, of addiction that's that's very neurocentric and more expansive views of addiction that take into account social and cultural and political and economic determinants and those kinds of variables just aren't going to show up in a brain scan and so um i i, I think dbs you know in particular is uh yeah, it kind of just presents itself as um, as a as a great story to to dive into all these ethical and, and moral and, and scientific conflicts, and and I wish more media coverage kind of was down for that. Like Harper's is very down for sex robots and dream machines <laughs> and brain implants. Like it's amazing, and it's 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 sadly uh, yeah uncommon. Yeah, because I think, you know, it, one of the worst things uh, someone in media can do is talk about how important journalism is. But it is important. <laughs> but also it is important. Yeah. And it is something that about, you know, American life over the past 25 years that has been seriously eroded. And as you were saying, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of there are a lot of local newspapers that don't exist anymore. And they were just sort of stuck on, you know, like. The New York Times is ha has more subscribers than it ever has. And it's like, well, yeah, because they're like one of the only games in town. And that's, you know, there's obviously the Internet is part of that. But there's uh, there are a lot of other factors uh, cutting into that. And when, you know, you just sort of parachute drop <laughs> a reporter from New York who's based in New York into some small community you're maybe going to lose some of the, you know, material nuance there. Maybe some, just maybe. Um, speaking as someone who did not grow up in New York, but, you know, James Fisher, who's, who's like the main subject of your story, who had, you know, he got this implant. Um, he's a resident of West Virginia, which is the site of more opioid related deaths than anywhere else in America. And, uh, there are actually, as you know in your piece, there are more deaths than births per year, which is a really horrifying statistic. Um, and I mean, again, not to generalize Chicago resident, but what would you say based on your own research? Like his story of addiction is characteristic of others in the state. Like, like in and and in what ways is it exceptional? Yeah. The, the the two main subjects for sure are, are are James and Jared, and they're similar in age and uh, grew up uh, very close to each other, and their stories were just remarkably similar. Uh, they're kind of anxious kids. They're uh, probably a little depressed, and they're growing up in small towns in rural West Virginia. James in particular, told me that his town didn't even have a, uh, a a Dollar General store, and those are those are everywhere. In those are everywhere. Yeah, and talk another another thing that has just 
proliferated yeah. over the entire United States and no one seems <laughs> to be talking about yeah. like how how you know even even other chain stores have been it's it's only dollar stores now. Yeah, and <laughs> This is a digression. And all the problems that go with that, yeah. This is a digression, but I wish that those Dollar Generals were all like syringe programs and harm reduction programs too. Like you oh, could you could distribute yeah. amazing kind of uh, hyper-local community-based health through those Dollar General stores. And at, or even Walmart. Yeah, Walmarts too. These super, super Target, wherever, like they're, these, these places have become the town square. No one wants to fess up to that. And instead of like providing you know so everybody you know works there or knows somebody who works there and it's like you could very easily pro start providing services like this at those places but again the stigma is too much because you know we're, every, everyone uh on the right or the left is kind of locked into this fucked up protestant <laughs> idea of perfection and you can't you can't get beyond it and so and you know it's like well those people deserve to die and instead it's like, I don't know, Walmart, you have nothing going on at like, you know, from the like two, two in the afternoon. Why not? Why not have some sort of resources for the community that you provide literally every other service for? Yeah, like, it's, it's fucked. I, I, I wish it would be so cool to see these brick and mortar places do something other than sell soda and whatever. Um and and so back to James though, and and Jared, both of them really are. I think uh, their addiction is really a product of I think growing up where they did in the specific moment in time that they did, and that uh, really kind of is illustrated by the huge deluge of opioid pain relievers that were distributed uh through west virginia and there's some really kind of basic material reasons for why west virginia was receiving so many pain relievers and it's an aging population most of whom did really hard labor for most of their lives and in, in mining and uh, all sorts of extractive industries from uh the lumber industries and and oil and gas like it's all there in west virginia all these extractive industries and so as this population of workers aged a lot of them developed chronic pain because of their work and so there were real genuine reasons why people in west virginia had more physical pain and therefore were receiving more opioids than than other places but things really in the uh, early aughts and mid 2000s spiraled out of control and a lot of places became what are known as pill mills and um, these places would basically prescribe obscene amounts of opioids and also anti-anxiety pills like benzodiazepines xanax and and it was James and Jared who both were using, both of them were using opioids and, and Xanax in, in, in great amounts. And after the pain pills became scarce and, and more expensive, they switch over to 
heroin. And then I think fortunately for both of them, they kind of got out of the opioid game before fentanyl came into play. So for so many reasons, it's just really like the the, the place you're in and the, the moment you're in are just so key here because had things been happening at a different place and different time, they might've done a deadly dose of fentanyl and, and died before ever getting help. And I think with, with, with James's addiction, he described after years of drug use and even being in recovery for, for some months and stretches at a time of just feeling uh, what he called anhedonia. It was just this inability to feel much of anything at all. Like no, nothing really brought pleasure. Um, he described this scene to me where he was uh, sober at the time after wrecking a Jeep and he paid loads and loads of money over a long period of time to get his Jeep fixed and get it out of the shop. And when he finally got it back, he kind of didn't feel anything like it, it, there wasn't any joy, wasn't any happiness, no kind of pleasure of getting this car he invested so much in and wanted so badly and needed so bad. It just didn't do anything for him. And so I think for a lot of reasons, because his addiction was so severe and his his mood and, and depression were were in a bad place that he kind of was a, a perfect candidate for uh, a therapy or a medication or something that, that could really, um, in this case, like stimulate him. <laughs> um, and, and so that, as far as his addiction story goes, like I, you know, I think there's um, a lot of patterns that, um, yeah, that, that didn't really seem all that unique, sadly. Um, it, it, it was, it was a story I, I'd heard a lot and the exceptional part of his story is, uh, that he consented to receive this brain implant and that kicked off, uh, just an enormous investment in him and his recovery. Yeah. Um, but speaking of West Virginia, as we were getting ready to record this podcast, you sent me a study about the West Virginia lobotomy project. And so this is in 1952. Uh, for unspecified reasons, West Virginia was chosen for a multi-year study of the effectiveness of transorbital lobotomies uh, uh, with Walter Friedman, who is the, the man who popularized the procedure in the United States. And he actually was kind of like a celebrity surgeon. And he would I believe there is at some point he was doing he would he would perform them, you know, in front of a crowd and try to do as many as possible. Uh, it's like really just ghoulish. I mean, again, the procedure. I don't need to explain what a lobotomy is, but the the ghoulishness of, of uh, this man, it's kind of yeah. you can't you can't overstate it. Um, and before this study started in 1952, the state had like an average number of lobotomies and it was it was the proving ground. For this procedure because they were like well look you know out of these you know the people who survived the procedure uh you know they're they're docile they're 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 doing better they they seem to uh, you know not have these problems anymore and like you touch very briefly in your piece on the history 
of psychosurgery and how it connects with neurosurgery today. So, I mean, are there parallels between some of those inhumane practices like lobotomies and the trial you reported on and that it's in West Virginia? Yeah, I, I, I thought that parallel was, was really kind of startling and unnerving. Um, and it, it did feel like trying to weave in a ton of the horrific and dark history of lobotomies and psychosurgery. It, it, it felt hard to, to bridge it with, with today. And, and I did try to kind of mention how that history is weighing down on especially the surgeons who are practicing now. And I think that showed itself in the very long and arduous consent process to even get into this trial. And, mm. you know, there's just parts, uh, all these historical, fascinating and dark stories and these kind of little nuggets that yeah, didn't quite make it in as prominent features in in the piece and as far as the, the the parallels go it's it was really something to see how serious the the surgeons were when they spoke about this and i yeah i'm happy to report that there is a very long consent process that mm -hmm. uh a ton of what's in in research trial there's inclusion and exclusion criteria where someone has to meet these qualifications and if they have any of these conditions they're excluded and and so for dbs and for addiction there was just a ton of and because this is kind of phase one it's called the safety and feasibility stage so there was just a ton of uh built-in safety measures and a ton of monitoring and oversight so much to the extent that James and Jared and the other people in the trial almost be, like they'd be all become like a family with the researchers and the surgeons. Like it was really an interesting dynamic where um, they all had to spend so much time with each other and get to know each other so much. And developed such a uh, trusting relationship that uh, what I saw was, you know, there's only four people in this trial and there's more than 20 people on the, the research end. So the, the ratio between doctors and counselors and, and, and researchers to subjects was, you know, very uh, unique as far as things I've seen. And, and yeah, that, that history of lobotomies and things that were done to people without their consent in a lot of cases, where people who were deemed to be deranged or disturbed or unfit for society, uh, they were kind of just plucked out of these hospitals. And in this case, yeah, that's, that surgeon, uh, Walter Freeman would basically scramble the frontal lobe of their uh, cortex. And that is just where we think largely that our personhood lives, our awareness of ourselves, 
our awareness of others, our ability to understand who we are and the world, like that's really where the, the action is for, for consciousness, we think, and to irrevocably and irreversibly um, take that away from someone is, I can't think of a, a something more horrifying <laughs> for uh, yeah. someone who took a Hippocratic oath to do to someone. Right. And I mean, it also, obviously, with lobotomies, because the procedure was so popular and seen as sort of this medical treatment, it wasn't just people who were, you know, schizophrenics should not have been subjected to that treatment. But there also came a time where naughty teenagers, uh, disobedient housewives, lots of different people were subjected to an ice pick through the eye and just had their lives ruined. Because again, you, we the brain is incredibly complex and you can't just sort of go in there and jab somebody and, and, and be like, okay, yes, this is, uh, this is going to turn out well. But I mean, obviously, it's a lot of a lot has changed in our understanding of the brain since you know the the forties and fifties. But there's still a lot that we don't know. And I mean, you you talk you know you 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 talk at one point about you know the you know the the control sort of having their 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 brain implants turned off for a couple of days, and the feelings that started to emerge. Uh, while they were sort of off, off the, 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 the stimulation. So could you, could you sort of talk through that a bit? Cause it, you, you, you describe it a little bit in the piece, but it is like, for me, that was a really fascinating mm -hmm. component of it. Yeah. It, it, because they don't even really like <laughs> kind of the people going through it don't even really understand what's happening. Yeah. And it's, it's even trying to put myself in, in, in their shoes where like there is an implant in my brain and it's sending a continuous voltage of electricity to a certain region and what's that doing and then they really learn what it's doing by yet yeah, turning it off and they were running some tests and some scans for for jared in particular and he had had his on for I think a, a year straight or a year and a half straight and they, they turn it off and he's hospitalized inpatient for this so that they can monitor him and he's in a safe place. And so they turn it off and he told me that he started getting incredibly angry and irritable and basically felt like shit. And it's like, mm -hmm. wow. So that sounds like withdrawal and that they're, that this stimulation that you're habituated to it over time, kind of like any other drug, and that your brain is used to functioning with it, and that becomes homeostasis, where that implant is now part of your nervous system, a critical part of your nervous system. And then to shut it off, uh, yeah, sent Jared into a withdrawal. And it really had me thinking, like, you know, how long would, would that have lasted for? And would he 
if he ever decides to get the implant removed permanently and live without the stimulation, like how long would it take for him to rebound or recover? Um, and so these are questions that we just don't know the answer to. But I think, yeah, I'm really glad I got to include that part of his story because I think it, it, it does speak to, A, that the stimulation is clearly doing something for him, but that also, B, that it's it's still there's a lot of unknowns and and that the 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 future you know it's too early to tell uh what this could or or will result in uh later like what the consequences of of this are for someone later in in their life and so um or that it's doing what they think it's it's acting on the brain the way they think it's acting on the brain. Yeah, and you know, right? And and it's uh I just think there's so much kind of uncanniness to to all of this, to to the idea. And I loved the art that accompanied the story because it was it was kind of <laughs> surreal and absurd and and uncanny and and I think really kind of captured some of the the undertones in in the story that like you know we're we're kind of in a wild place when uh people are in such dire straits that they're consenting to neurosurgery that uh will implant electrodes in their brain and and give stimulation it's it's just wild to think about (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I think um, it goes back to story we were talking about, about at the top about recovery and how, you know, there's such little relative to the problem. There's very little regulation and very little support for people who do want to get sober. And there's a very narrow path that one must walk if, you know, for many people in those states to, 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 to try and get to sobriety. But I, wanted to I would be interested to hear more about Medtronic thinking about the longevity of this treatment because Medtronic is the company that trademarked deep brain stimulation years ago and it's I think uh, it's obvious what can be lost when medical innovation is left up to the market um, but also what if Medtronic goes out of business will people who've had this surgery be no longer be able to get treatment because it's it's promising now. There's lots of return on their investment now, but what you know, uh, what is this company and and what 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 uh what put, what could potentially happen there? Yeah, this is the part of the story that I actually learned the most about, and it, and it had to do with thinking really critically about Medtronic and its kind of material impact in the in America's largely privatized healthcare system and and marketplace and I got really lucky that I found a sociologist in Australia who uh really helped me think about DBS and, and Medtronic in in very useful ways. And 
His name is John Gardner, and, he, and he's a sociologist, and he wrote these really great histories of DBS and, and Medtronic features so prominently because it's one of the few medical device companies that has the technology to pull this off. And so I learned a lot about Medtronic and diving into the history of the company. It started in about the 1950s, right around the time. Yeah. Back to lobotomies. <laughs> yeah. Suspicious timeline. Okay. Yep. And, and so originally it was a small little medical uh, equipment repair shop, I believe in, in like Minneapolis in, in, in Minnesota. And it was run by this guy, Earl Bakken, Bacon. And he, you know, he's kind of interesting. Like he was served in World War II as kind of like a radar systems guy. And he got a graduate degree in electrical engineering from the University of Minnesota. And then, you know, after the war, he goes back to his trade, so to speak, and he invents the first pacemaker. And at first, it was this kind of big, clunky, external device that you would have to, like, kind of hook somebody up to, and it wasn't very practical. And then in 1960, they design one of the first implantable versions of a pacemaker. And it's the pacemaker that kind of, to this day, serves as a critical feature of deep brain stimulation. And so this stimulator, this pacemaker device is uh, implanted near the collarbone, and it connects to wires that are threaded up someone's neck and behind their ear and attached to these electrodes that are then inserted in the brain. And so that's, it's called the pulse generator. That's where the electricity is coming from. And yeah, back to the, the uh, John Gardner, the sociologist, he was just so helpful because back to the media coverage, I had read so much, uh, I think very optimistic and I kind of idealist uh, stories about deep brain stimulation and how it came to be used and how it came to be tested on addiction in West Virginia. And, you know, I'll just pull up a quote from him that I think kind of really uh, just perfectly illustrates what I was uh, wrestling with while, while reading uh, about DBS in, in the press. And it goes, he, he writes, most contemporary accounts of DBS therapy give the impression that it is the inevitable consequence of scientific discovery and medical progress, as if the intrinsic qualities of the DBS technology were sufficient to guarantee its consolidation as a therapy. And then he goes on to say, DBS was originally developed as a treatment for chronic pain a therapy not currently approved by the FDA. And he kind of just concludes, the history of DBS is, in fact, complex. <laughs> and and, and it, it's, it's perfect because what he's saying is like, it's not 
just because of this technology and this medical breakthrough and this uh, amazing advancement on the march, on the onwards and uppers forever march of progress that we have DBS and that it's being tested on all these different conditions. It's because there are companies like Medtronic that are part of what I describe as kind of like an agenda, like this ever expansive search to apply DBS to more and more things in the hopes that it will work. And that's where the return on investment comes into play, where if it does work, then there's now a new market for this technology and more uh, neurosurgeons to train, more devices to manufacture. And we get into kind of, yeah, the, the economic reality of, of uh, our healthcare marketplace. And it's companies like Medtronic, they're huge players in the world of medical devices. Right. Because a, a common argument against socialized medicine or the defense of why Americans pay so much for healthcare is that, well, so many innovations happen in the United States, you know, medical in innovations. And then you look at something like this and it's like Medtronic was trying this out on like, you know, their their technology the, the on Parkinson's patients, on their uh, depression Lots of you know, you know, lots of different trial and error. And again, it's not it's not wrong to necessarily test out something that could potentially help someone. Um, and I believe that you write that some of the the Parkinson's patients, it is it is actually helpful for controlling tremors and things like that. But again, that that some some other maybe some other approach <laughs> that might not be, you know, supported by the market and, uh, you know, technocratic governments from George H.W. Bush onward, uh, you know, like that, that, that we might be missing something. And, and, and recently I was reminded of stem cell research, specifically oh. during the George, George W. Bush. You don't uh, hear much about stem cells anymore. Uh. No, and, you know, and, and it's funny because a lot of that research went to Singapore and you hear that they've done some good things, but again, it's hard, it's hard to know because it's like, it became this weird wedge issue. Yeah, uh, it totally did. Like, uh, <laughs> like, the, like the, the kind of right wing evangelicals thought it was, um, yeah. uh, like there was some kind of theologically based moral op opposition to using stem cells. Yeah. And I mean, I think even during, um, during like the first Republican debate, Mike Huckabee was like on there being like, yeah, the Planned Parenthood sells baby parts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're selling the stem cells. And it's like, literally, no. But uh, but the, the that's something like that technology, you know, or stem cell research, that was that was killed by the government and not the market. So what what happens like to, to you know, sort of look at the flip side of this? What happens when treatment is left up to the whims of whoever is in office and what and what again, like what can be gained, what can be lost? Because it seems like every couple of years we uh, we get one extreme or the other. <laughs> yeah, I, I did try to set this up in the story and and there was a coincidence that Ali Razai, who 
is the head neurosurgeon, the kind of leader of the phase one DBS trial at West Virginia University. He graduates from medical school at the University of Southern California in 1990. And it's that very year where George H.W. Bush declares the decade of the brain. And it's this big uh, proclamation from the president that, uh, you know, very progressive in, in the sense that, like, we are going to invest a huge swath of, of government resources and mobilize the, nas- the National Institutes of Health to brain research and studying uh, things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, these uh, neurodegenerative disorders that to this day really don't have any cures. Um, and we're going to march on this line of progress using a quite narrow neuro scientific line of inquiry like that's what that's what we're going to do and and addiction at the same time became very much popularly known as a as a as a brain disease and and everything uh and this goes back to the the sociologist from australia gardner he said that like society was really kind of primed for something like dbs because we began to think of behaviors and uh, disorders and any problem in terms of its neural correlates. Like, how do we trace everything back to this system in the brain or this neurotransmitter? Uh, and, and what I was trying to do in, in the story was like, start with James Fisher's surgery. And in the first paragraph, Rezai, the surgeon, is kind of emphasizing how the precision and and success of this surgery comes down to the millimeter. Like it is so minute and micro and so precise. And that's what this surgery takes for it to be effective. And then from there, kind of on zooming way out from the neurotransmitters and brain circuits and this kind of very highly individualized neurobiological view out into the very messy and complicated world in places like West Virginia. And that kind of clash with the 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 micro down to the millimeter with the gigantic uh, complex world we're living in. Um, and so it's in in my mind, I, I think we've we've spent so much time researching the micro and so much time mapping every nook and cranny of the brain and unraveling the neurobiology and physiology of so many things that what gets lost in that kind of narrow kind of tunnel vision is this much broader, expansive view of humanity and and our health, which uh, is determined by so many other things happening way outside of our brain. Yeah, because obviously, when drugs, what what drugs do, right? They they alter the functioning of your brain, and 
again, because of things, something like homeostasis, you become acclimated to, you know, the effects. Your your brain chemistry changes. And so it's so easy to just be like, oh, yeah, it's it's all in the brain. And it's such a stupid, <laughs> such a stupid art. You know, it's like clearly so reductive. You, yeah, it's so reductive. Yeah. It's like, how can you how can anyone still want to again? It's like it's like how can anyone still want to have the nature versus nurture argument now? Mm -hmm. Like it's so it's, it's like, we've been having this argument for, for over a hundred years. Like you have to, can can we move forward please? Yeah. 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 We're kind of locked in that. Aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Again. Cause I do, I do the, um, I do this newsletter every week for Harper's called from the archive and it is, um, so I sort of go through and pick out stories from the archive that are relevant to things that are happening in the news now. And it is, I find that so often where it's like, oh yeah, this could have been written today. <laughs> Not necessarily in a good way, but it's always, it's always interesting. Yeah, but like, I guess, like there's a stasis, like we're totally trapped. Yeah. 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 That's so good. <laughs> but I wanted to, uh, I, I guess I, I, I would feel remiss. Uh, this will be the last thing I asked. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about a treatment you tried, which is something uh, a lot less uh, uh, involved, or at least for implementation, uh, these VR goggles that are used to help immerse subjects in a setting where they might have used drugs, which is like, you, and you, you know, you call it like an immersion therapy, right? And so is this a common treatment? Do you expect it will become more common? And beyond whether or not it's common, like, do you do you think it's actually effective? I think if Mark Zuckerberg heads the FDA, it'll be super, super common. <laughs> he already has so much power, though. That's why I have to ask. Oh, He's man. pushing that medicine on us. God, the images from the, like, prototype or whatever look like complete Ooh. garbage. It's just like... How much billions are you spending on on like MS clip art VR? It's oh like everybody God. forgot about Second Life. Talk about stasis. What happened? Yeah, it it honestly looked like the Microsoft paperclip guy, and I'm like, all right. Um, so so VR in a kind of clinical and therapeutic context is actually pretty interesting, and it it is most prominently used and studied now with treating veterans who have PTSD. And it's like DBS, it, it's and these other things, it's 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 best thought of as like adjunctive. Like this isn't the thing. This is part of a approach where there's lots of other things happening too. And with VR, especially in the case of PTSD and veterans, um, it actually intuitively just sounds really promising where uh, veterans who served overseas in Iraq or Afghanistan, like they are placed in a Humvee and boom, an IED goes off and they relive the, the horrors of, of war and their experience in a safe clinical setting with therapists and psychologists and and people there to to process it and and it, this comes out of the ideas of of exposure therapy where people with certain phobias 
maybe they can confront their fear in safe ways and kind of gradually uh, encounter this thing that is terrifying to them. And if they do that enough times, they kind of come away with like, you know, I confronted my worst fears and I'm still okay. Like I'm still here and I can talk about it. And it, I don't know if you're watching the rehearsal with Nathan Fielder. But, yes. But this is, it, it's it's like the rehearsal. Like you can rehearse yeah. this trauma over and over again and confront it and maybe be empowered to to conquer it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so with with VR in the uh, world of, of addiction treatment, um, yeah, like I, I don't know if it, is as potent of a tool or as promising of a tool as it is for something like PTSD and, and veterans. And so I tried on the goggles at, at the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute in West Virginia, and I was transported to what looked like, yeah, like a, a college kid's messy apartment. And it did look a lot like the places I, I lived, you know, to be sure it, it like there was kind of lines of white powder on the table and like maybe, you know, a bong or something like it, it was, it was like placing me back in that place and in, in that, in that setting. And, and yeah, like I, I think I wrote like, yeah, that I found the the kind of immersive qualities to be rather uninspiring. Like I, I don't think, uh, at least for me, where I'm at right now, like that, that was really doing much for me by way of like, yeah, placing me in, in like a dicey environment and then um, kind of studying how it made me feel. And and that's, it could be because, you know, I'm, I'm much older and I've been in, uh, doing very well and I don't have a ton of like triggers and I'm not kind of living on the edge anymore um, that it didn't really feel like much but you know I, I again like it, it back to the very top of the conversation I think just the fact that uh, at this place they're trying VR they're trying implants they're using other non-invasive forms of electricity, like transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is kind of like a helmet thing, and it stimulates the outer parts of the brain with electricity. And, and so they're just trying to kind of use all this technology and apply it to addiction in ways that hasn't really ever happened before. And so again, that's kind of what drew me here was because it's here's a place where the bedrock principles are don't really hinge on like prayer and meditation and and group therapy necessarily like they're they're in a whole other league trying all these other different things and and vr was kind of a good example of like yeah we're we're you know on this uh kind of high-tech mode of inquiry over here. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, um, whenever I think about this piece in DBS, I am reminded of the end, how it ends, actually, um, and how, you know, they're 
Jared and James are talking and it's like, even with the implant, it comes down to how bad you want it. And you know, that if you're, if you're kind of half in half out, you're probably going to get half ass results. And that, and James adds, you know, it's just a tool. I still got to work a program. And like this, this idea that, you know, everybody would love to have one solution but it's probably going to be something more like what they're doing in this lab where it's a, it, it's a concert of things working together because it's not just one thing that tur- turns you into an addict, right? Yeah. But. Yeah, I, I, I did think it was fitting to end there. And it kind of brings back, brings back the really complex humanness of the all too humanness of addiction right where it's like um maybe a big part of getting sober is finding the desire within you to really want to be sober and maybe some for some they'll need a lot of therapies and medications and maybe high-tech stuff to help them understand that but they both kind of concluded and decided for themselves that going through this trial and seeing all this high-tech stuff and even getting neurosurgery that it still comes down to their own internal motivation and and it, it and a lot of the kind of is addiction a brain disease or is it not like a a lot of that is about to what extent are we in control of of our drug use or uh are people choosing really choosing this and do we have free will yeah like like it's basically (laughs) but also really (laughs) yeah it basically comes down to those questions and very few other medical conditions and psychological uh disorders kind of come down to those questions but addiction really does and that both both of these men were like uh kind of thinking or saying out loud like you know i i want to be in recovery and it's it's my choice to pursue life this way and and they in a way, they're really emphasizing their own agency in all of this, and their own, uh, their own free will, their own determinations, their own desires, and, um, and so it's, yeah. I thought it was it was fitting to kind of leave it on where where they're at and what they think. Right. Well, Zach, thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. Thank you. I, 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 I love this. I had a great time talking about it. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montagani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.